0: It is not in the admiration of wisdom, it is in the use of it that we become wise. Welcome
1: to the On Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Nico Grossman. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emergent field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living wisely in the 21st century. I would like to thank our listeners first. Thank you so much for staying with us for so long. If you like this show, please consider rating us on your favorite platform and telling your friends about how wonderful the On Wisdom podcast is. Deepak Ramola is a writer, actor, teacher and lyricist, originally hailing from the hill town of Dehradun in India. In 2009, Deepak founded Project Fuel, which documents designs and passes on human wisdom using the tools of education, art, and media. The project has collected wisdom and insights from survivors of human trafficking in Nepal, middle school children in Afghanistan, refugees in Europe, abandoned ghost villages in Uttarakhand, and even a man who has witnessed over 12,000 deaths.
2: Deepak, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So I have a question for you. Um, What's what's your favorite, most powerful life lesson you've come across that you'd like to share with our audience?
0: Wow, that is quite a good question to start with, with somebody who collects nearly 500 (laughs) per week. My latest favorite life lesson, I would say, is from a seven-year-old child from Bulgaria who said, don't eat an ice cream from both ends. You will make a lot of mess, and you will not enjoy it.
2: Wow. Okay, so we will have to unpack this. Um, but um, before we do that, we'll ask you some questions about wisdom.
3: When we when we talk about wisdom, one thing that we like to sort of to get to early is like what exactly do we mean when we talk about wisdom? Because it's a word that um, people assume everyone else knows what it means. And halfway through the conversation, you can realize you're talking across purposes. So like, um, what, is it, what does wisdom mean to you? And from the sort of experiences and the lessons you've gathered, do you, do you have any sort of thoughts or aspects that you've come to think of as associated with wisdom that perhaps are, are overlooked, or maybe even surprising and counterintuitive?
0: Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Charles, for that question. In fact, the way I define wisdom is, you know, the, the understanding of hu- human nature and the understanding of what one ought to do if one was to consider, you know, this knowing in relation to doing in, in, in a context-sensitive way. In a very simplified way, I would say, because I'm a poet, uh, I, would <laughs> like to, I would like to say, for me, wisdom is being in a garden, knowing when to weed, knowing when to plant, and knowing when to just observe the garden and do nothing. Mm. It is that interplay between those three things that come from this sense of awareness about the self, which guides the, the you know, relationship with the outer world. I think that sort of motion for me is, or dance for me, is, is wisdom. So I, I don't see it as a routine. I see it as like mm. a choreography between mm. these different elements
3: morality is something that we think about quite a bit on the podcast in the sense that is um can you be wise do you think without intending to do good um you could you be um you know could you be wise and evil or do you think that wisdom necessitates a sort of a sense of doing the right thing
0: Mm -hmm. that's 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 a uh interesting thing because you know so so many researchers also say wisdom is didactic so you know which contradictory position do you take Mm -hmm. but I think I I think morality is sort of an essential component of wisdom Mm. but as I say that I also want to include saying that it matters who defines the principles around that morality is it a dominant group defining what the power and privilege of that Dominant group is in society, and at what time and uh, you know place in in human growth do you see that morality mm-hmm. factoring? Very small example would be I, I you know used to collect Charles uh, life lessons of sex workers mm-hmm. and on customer negotiation and mm-hmm. brand management, and I used to teach that as a module to business school students. <laughs> okay, and uh, till the end of my lecture, I would never reveal where this. Uh, you know sort of uh, perspective and knowledge and wisdom comes from and Mm -hmm. I would ask them to guess at the end of the class and they would quote the biggest of the marketing gurus and the Mm -hmm. books and you know all of Mm -hmm. the the run and then I would reveal to them the faces of the women who shared those incredible advices and suggestions and it would take them a minute to digest that because they never saw it coming from Uh, you know, a red light district, these Mm. incredible principles and perspectives of marketing and brand negotiation. And when you sort of dissect it, you realize the women in the red light district do not consider their work immoral. They see it as a survival mechanism, a tool to navigate the clutches of, you know, whatever patriarchy and you know economics of of living a life in an under-resourced community. But often from the highbrow perspective, you would consider that work immoral. And so any learning that emerges out of it is almost neglected. Mm. And that's why I say that morality is important because it intel is sort of provides a nice cushioning to intelligence and gives Mm. you a framework and a lens Mm. and for the Instagram generation, almost a filter. To, mm. to do mm. things you know not without an intention but it also matters to pay attention to who defines what morality is and in what you know time and space I, I was with the uh, Maasai tribe in Tanzania earlier this year and at uh, a point in time the Maasai culture is is nomadic uh, mm-hmm. you know the Maasai uh, man is allowed to marry as many women as they please and uh, I was interviewing the women uh, today in 21st century and in 2022 and they were against this you know multiple marriage culture
3: Mm.
0: and when you try to understand why the man thinks it's it's almost immoral to decide that but from a resource perspective that lens of morality or uh, principle does not stand true today because in the old time the Maasai man had 200 cows needed more Mm. wives to take Mm. care of them Mm. so it sort of provided a, a solution to be able to you know, bring and enlarge the clan. Mm. Today, uh, the resources are limited, climate change is affecting the tribe so much. How does that shift in those principles and rules around it, Mm. shift the moral character and the moral definition is also an important point on who will be considered wise in the tribe now,
3: you know. Mmm, mm, that's interesting so, that, that that what could be the right thing to do and the, the moral thing to do could depend on, you know, the context of the time, the resources available, etc. So, you know, because you often hear about them being sort of timeless principles, but in fact, that might not be the case.
0: And it evolves. I think that's mm. what people people um, often forget about uh, at least wisdom or, or sparks of wisdom in that sense that it has been Sort of this exclusive, privileged elite entity or a position of enlightenment that you arrive at, hopefully mm. if you arrive at, <laughs> but uh you know I think over the years we have to question how do we make that more accessible? I often go into classrooms uh Professor Egan and Charles, and I ask uh you know people define you know compliment yourself in in ten words, and they will write ten words beautiful intelligent smart, you know all the all the usual. And then you say, okay, I give you 50 words right now. And then they will write, okay, broad-minded, open-minded. Never in the 13 years of my teaching have I seen the word wise being used by Mm. anybody. Mm. Uh, And I I, I, I almost like, you know, uh, lean back to think, why is that? Mm. When I ask people, it is because the word Uh, wise or wisdom comes with a sense of responsibility. People almost feel that if you call yourself wise or a shade of wise, you are not allowed to make any more mistakes in life Mm -hmm. henceforth. Mm -hmm. And so you shirk away with a a, a short of, uh, you know, a sort of uh, almost this uh, repulsive nature, the term wisdom attached to you because you think it's stealing away your freedom. It's not elevation of you into a higher consciousness. Mm (laughs) <laughs> and, and I think in, 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 in the world that we live today, it is very crucial that we expand the radar and the influence of what wisdom means so that more and more people can stand within it mm. and understand how they can use it for their advantage. In, um, in, in the Vedas, in, in the Hindu mythology, you know, in the state mm. of deep sleep, uh, the soul, which is the Atma, limited by Pran, which is the breath, is mm. called Prajna and that's the word for wisdom. Mm. Rajya or Prajna. And it actually translates to the highest and purest form of wisdom, intelligence and understanding, mm. primarily because when you move away from this reasoning and inference and from this you know, uh, sorry, aura of ego, is when you can base yourself in understanding what is right, what is wrong. And I think that does employ a little bit of morality, that, that losing the ego because it encourages you to push uh, outside of yourself and gaze into the eyes of humanity and ask, is what I am doing coming to be for common good, or is it a selfish attribute?
2: So that's really interesting. So it's like some kind of a self-transcendence feature where you sort of step aside, and only then you can sort of figure out if the morality fits the situation at hand. Or, um, yeah. So it seems like it's a very relativist um, use-oriented positional morality, no?
0: (laughs) Yes, and I think quite democratic as well because we need more of that. How so? Uh, I I mean, if you if you really, uh, you know, see either from research, whether it's uh, Gluck and who, who said that, you know, life challenges are catalysts for cultivating wisdom, or is it Lee who did the meta-analysis and found that, you know, a combination of life experiences, uh, I think operated on higher level cognitive, affective and reflective abilities sort of get you to have these discourses on wisdom if you see it from an academic scholarly lens or you see it from a grandmother's perspective in the mountains of Afghanistan, it is not in the admiration of wisdom. It is in the use of it that we become wise. So if we, if, you know, that, I think that's, that's for me something that has stood out in all these years of at least people <laughs> you, you think have, have a wisdom uh, born mm-hmm. in, in them.
1: Right, right, right.
2: So that leads me to another question. There's a very interesting transition, uh, Deepak. So you're talking about the use of wisdom. So if you were to pick one thing that people could do to help them make wise decisions, what would mm. Deepak say?
0: Have more perspective. I think that is perspective the con- on what? Just perspective, out, like on different things outside of yourself. Employ it to assist you. Perspective in in you know, uh, in understanding yourself and others and maybe understanding yourself through the lens of others and understanding others through your own lens. I I use perspective almost as this broad term, but what I mean by that is this learnable skill, which is, you know, urgently required to understand our inherently democratic nature and to step out of our own, uh, I don't know, you know, muddied thoughts and nature and habits to look out of ourselves and step into the shoes of other people maybe you can say that there is a tone or a little bit of an essence of empathy there there's there is a perspective of you know uh right. value tolerance there all of those things are but i think the way people in communities around the world can learn is to step outside the comfort and the complacency of their living and, like, i
2: agree with that i agree with that but uh, you know you and i are both dancers at uh, yes. least in our <laughs> formal lives, and um, you mentioned choreography uh, um, in our prior conversations. And so, uh, when I'm thinking of dancing, and when I'm thinking of um, of executing something, in the moment that I'm executing a particular, let's say, sophisticated choreography, it's very hard for me to step outside myself. Don't you think? It, it's, so that step doesn't really happen. It, you almost it, you may internalize it; it may be just coming natural to you. Mm -hmm. But uh, in many ways, I don't feel it. So because I agree with you, and that's certainly what a lot of research shows, that this kind of stepping outside of yourself, considering other viewpoints, is very, very powerful. And yet, when we talk about wisdom, we also sometimes talk about this other feature, when you execute something, when you are in the heat of the moment, in that moment that you will not act, not because you sort of like step outside and sort of deliberate and think about other viewpoints, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm but because of how you act, because of your choreography. So what do you think about that? Do you have any uh, (laughs) wisdom nugget that can help us solve this problem?
0: That's beautifully articulated, I must say. And I would add to that, that yes, maybe what I what I missed out earlier on saying when you have to step out of yourself is to not step out of you as an individual, but I think every human being is an amalgamation, almost a collage of different personalities, different experiences, to step out of yourself from one aspect of internal discord and move into a part that is less conflicted. You know what I mean? So maybe when you're dancing and you know, you've put on this hat of The person who's very conscious about did you get the rhythm right did did you get the movement right is everybody looking at you to step out of that into another person who's always been comfortable in a different scenario so that switching of perspective even within yourself i think can allow for many different interesting takes on how you interact and engage with yourself and the world at large does that make sense
2: yeah, absolutely. And we can talk more about it afterwards. Uh, this is just like <laughs> yes. an interesting conversation. But Charles has another question for yeah. us. Well,
3: uh, first I was like, I just wanted to say that, that um, you mentioned just you two are dancers. Igor, how do you know I might be a dancer too? Like, have you ever seen me do my <laughs> stuff on the dance floor? I've got some John Travolta moves. Like, you know, That's feeling a little exactly. excluded here. I, I've got skills I mean, on the I'm dance not floor.
2: Exclu- I mean, uh, <laughs> we, will, we, we, we shall test that, Charles. Yeah, we will the, test the, that. The, the, right. the Wisdom Dance Challenge. Is That's wrong. right.
3: I like it. Um,
0: you, you both need outside of the podcast. You both need a video outshoot right. on, on yes, YouTube yes, or something. Exactly. Yeah,
3: yeah. We're working the interpretive on interpretive dance. of ours. Yeah, interpretive dance. Um, so I was get, yeah. My question is like an, a kind of more a structural level question. So often, you know, the way we behave is partly a product of uh, you know what's going on inside us, but also like um, the context we find ourselves in. Like that has a huge influence on on how we behave. So, um, do you have any thoughts feedback on how we could you know what what would be a change that we could make to the way society is set up um, that would lead to us generally taking wiser decisions? Mm.
0: I feel Charles it it involves a cultural shift where the wisdom of children is valued too. You know, it's not something you arrive at at a certain age, you know, with with certain life experiences, but to but to really what I was mentioning earlier, to make it more democratic, more accessible mm-hmm. and allow for our children uh the, you know the need to show their emotions, how to feel, how to embrace all that is mm-hmm. non-obvious so that Wisdom is not this conversation that happens in isolation in, you know, the corridors of scholarly wisdom discussions, but in the school classrooms mm. and guides our day to day rather than our extreme challenging crisis situations. I think it it is almost, uh, you know, inundated with unquestioned stereotypical messages that shape how we think and what we believe about ourselves and others. You know, it, it's almost this brainwashing, even more insidious in the fact that it's woven into every structural thread of you know our culture, uh, mm-hmm. by centuries and centuries of who was called wise. And I think mm-hmm. the way society can progress towards a more wise reasoning, wise, thinking, wise deployment and use of, of a wisdom-based approach is centering it around the learner, which in many situations in you know conventional, and conventional learning system, is a child. How many times in in your life have both of you heard the word wise associated with a child? Mm. Even though our education systems, you know, Mm. you meet parents and you ask them, would you want your child to be smart or intelligent? And they will pick intelligent. And you say intelligent or street smart? And they say, oh, street smart, you know, a little bit of everything. Mm. Okay, street smart or uh, wise? And they'll say wise. And then you go back and you say, okay, where in the education system or in the learning ecosystem... Are we preparing our children to be wise and then you have a blank stare because we think we teach calculus and hope it will automatically translate to a child learning how to deal with uncertainties Mm. we teach uh, you know theories of gravity and assume that a child will know how to stay grounded we teach punctuation and grammar and vocabulary and hope that everybody has mastered the skill of expression and communication Mm. We hand out degrees, uh, you know, and report cards, thinking we've prepared people to face life. Mm. And I think in that very system is the flawed definition and conception of what knowledge and wisdom is. And as if you can almost, you know, replace one with the other. We, We have to be able to prepare children and people who are growing adults into knowing that a lot of times in life, you have to deploy wisdom in situations where you're, you have competing values with goals. And it's not a matter of what's good or bad, but it's a matter of trade-off. What you, which value are you letting uh, go of in a moment that you decide it's right, mm. right? Mm. Or forming authentic human connection. So in short, to answer your question, in, in the totality of it is to be able to allow for education that, you know, that anchors itself on wisdom cultivation uh, in the unskilled hands of age, uh, Mm. you know, hoping that as they grow into adulthood, they will garner more experiences, but not discriminating or uh, ruling out what they know now. Some of my most favorite life lessons collected in 13 years have come from children. There was a young girl, five years old, who I asked her and, you know, uh, I met her at Mother Teresa's NGO many, many years ago. And I said, what have you learned in life so far? She was five. <laughs> five, right. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she looked piercingly at me and she said, when you're done using the jar, remember to close the lid. Mm. And you know, I, I took that life lesson to Nepal post the earthquake. And I was teaching a group of, you know, 20 most distinguished thinkers of Nepal who were sort of, you know, considered as the people who will rebuild it after the 2015 earthquake. And there was a there was a there was a, there was a mental um, uh, from a mental health hospital a, a professional who almost broke down listening to that. And I said, why are you crying? And he said, I realize why my marriage is failing. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I just gained the perspective that I forget to often close the lid. Mm. on things. So when I come back home from the hospital, I'm still talking about the hospital, I'm Mm. still on the calls. Mm. And my wife said to me, you're never here. Mm. And, Mm. you know, that the five life lesson of that five year old girl was able to sort of resonate with him, bring that authentic human connection and show a newer, you know, beyond a stereotype perspective to him. And I think that kind of openness to real life scenarios, whether they come at age 81, and they come at age 5, Being open to them. I met 108-year-olds and walked away thinking, really? That's what you learned? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Is that all you've got after 108 years?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because you can can sense uh, ignorance for religious sentiment. You can uh, hear so much of gender bias. Even Mm. if you reach 108 and then Mm. you've met 11-year-olds who you know, who, who, who ask, uh, I remember in Pittsburgh uh, last month, I asked some I asked a group of children to write a question they would like to ask God or the universe. Mm. And one of the girls wrote, dear God, why are there no new animals? Have you stopped imagining? Mm. And I, I mean, you know, I don't Absolutely. want to discredit
3: it just because
0: like, she's not yeah. 20 years
3: old. Um, I'm just going to dig in slightly to this idea that, um, and i you must have this must have been something that you spent some time thinking about so in that example of the jar so the child has not intended that life lesson in the way that that adult later has interpreted it so what does what how do you think about that so it's is that a message that didn't translate or is that like that's just the way it works with life lessons one person means one thing someone else comes along and reads it differently that's valid it's not it's not a failed communication. It's a, a tool that can be interpreted in many ways. What's your, what are your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the beauty of sparks of wisdom, you know, if we can call life lessons that, that they allow for open interpretation. They allow room and radar for people to join in. If it was a stone that you had to chisel all by yourself, it would be difficult. But if it was, um, you know, a view that you were looking at or an ocean you were swimming in, it's all there, but you know, you still have a part for yourself that that still you can you can sort of hold on to. And I think that's the beauty of it. It's like this. I mean, I talk in metaphors, so I think it's like how we use the sun. You know, some people use it to dry pickles in India, you know, on rooftops. And some people use it to get tanned, and some people get use it to get something else. But the universality of it, the multi-usage of it, I think is what makes wisdom or these life lessons so beautiful and enriching because they are inclusive. It's almost imagine someone opening their heart, saying something and then opening their arms and giving you enough space to stand within that embrace without really touching that person or seeing that face. It's, it's for me, the life lesson in that scenario, that, that example that you just gave with the five year old girl is the realization of being held without pinning it to a name and face. And a lot of times when we ask people for advice, what are we really hoping to do? We are hoping to be held in the awareness of someone else. You know, there there is no formula to living life. But if we know that somebody stood before us in a place and arrived at a conclusion that was a little open-ended, maybe that is our indication that we too can get by. And that's when you see proverbs in cultures around the world they're rooted in metaphors you know that's why i treat the life lesson of the five-year-old girl in the nepal context almost like a proverb because it it's not direct you know it's it's layered and you unpeel it as you go
2: so deepak Uh, So far, we talked about different life lessons, and we talked about wisdom and your perspective on it. We want to talk a little bit about you. Um, And uh, what I find so interesting about you is uh, your uh, life history. Um, uh, You started by setting up a global education project in India, and you were like barely an adult. I think you were 17. Uh, You worked uh, as a lyricist in Hindi cinema in Bollywood. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your story? How did these projects come about? What is your life story?
0: Yes, I uh, grew up with with a mother who was pulled out of school in grade five by her grandmother and never had a chance to go back to school. And I never believed that story because my mother is one of the smartest and wisest people I know. And she would say, life is my classroom. I'm learning from living. And as a young person, I used to think if she's learning simply from living, that means everyone who's living is learning something. And where can I find that information? And I just couldn't Google it. So I started collecting these life stories and these different life experiences. uh, And they helped me so much that I started passing them on, teaching and designing. And that's how my project uh, and organization Project Fuel came about. In terms of lyrics writing, I think when you're born in a middle-class family, Professor Eger, uh, in a small city with limited resources, you sort of just go at every opportunity that you get. So because how did you get
2: that one? I mean, it's not like that every child suddenly becomes a Bollywood uh, a poet.
0: <laughs> I, I, think you, I think you have to do a little bit of preparation. But uh, I, without any contacts in the music industry, when I was in school, yeah. in the school bus I used to actually pick up songs, rip them off the lyrics they had, and put my words into it. I must have done oh, okay. that for almost four years of my school life with no connection to to Bollywood or Hindi cinema. Three years later, when I arrived in Mumbai for college, I uh-huh. was act, acting in a television show, and somebody introduced me to a music director. And I was a poet, and I used to write. and The person said, "Oh, would you be interested in in, in you know showing your uh, lyrics into fitting your words into." Song as the lyrics, and I so wait tried. So, hold
2: on a second. Let's, let's take a step back for a second. You just mentioned that you were on a TV show in <laughs> Mumbai.
0: I, can you I talk have a little lived bit more about that. <laughs> I have lived all the possible lives I can imagine <laughs> for myself so far. Uh, I I was once infamous as a guy with eight jobs. I acted in television and films as an actor. Okay. i I uh, write poetry. I write songs. For, for films. And one of the reasons is that because I see it all as mediums of expression, not really jobs, you know, it's storytelling one way or the other. And uh, I, I was in college, loved theater, uh, did theater. And so movies and television shows happened, you know, almost as an outcome of that. Somebody saw me performing, invited me, auditioned me, and then I was on a movie set. <laughs>
2: Wow. So that was when you were uh in Mumbai already for college or was it uh,
0: prior to that? Yes, when I was 17 and in Mumbai. Wow. So you yes. were scouted to be in the um, movie. I mean, yes, uh, scouted but also you have to I, th- I think you have to be prepared and scouted. <laughs> <laughs> I I, that's how I would
3: say it, yeah. Of course. I'm going to dig into the projects a little bit now because the story around the projects, I mean your your life story is is fascinating. Then the project like is a really really interesting project so it there's a it seems like there's an umbrella project called project fuel uh, and then some specific projects that sit underneath it like the wise wall project the world wisdom map uh, i would just love to hear a little bit about like what the kind of how they work what's the concept what does it look like on the ground if you could just tell us a little bit about some of those projects i mean and you probably can't cover it all so maybe just some highlights. <laughs>
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, Project Fuel is, I mean, as you said, the umbrella project, the understanding is that every person has a set of value or a life lesson that is a conservative estimate, right? Like if every person was to only give one lesson, you would still have 7 billion lessons from around the world. So what Project Fuel does, um, you know, on, on a very basic level is document life lessons from around the world and design and pass them on through interesting projects. So we have four verticals. We have education, where we design these life lessons into educational modules. I was Mm -hmm. mentioning about life lessons of sex workers for business, you know, Mm -hmm. students, Mm -hmm. uh, and and vice versa. Um, Then there's the art component. When we started working with communities where literacy level was low, or you needed a bigger visual depiction to get Mm -hmm. attention to solve Mm -hmm. the community, we started deploying art. So what we do uh, with the art component, Charles, is we adopt uh, and collaborate with villages. We document life lessons of every member of every family from that community. And we paint it on the walls of their homes. And it generally is tied to solving a need for a community. So with the Maasai, it was about creating a school and building a water harvesting unit. Mm. In the mountains of Uttarakhand, it was fighting, you know, migration and ghost villages that these villages were turning into. Mm. The third component is media, which is a lot of films, documentaries, interviewing people, uh, you know, from, from across the world in different communities and understanding their perspectives and experiences. Mm. And the fourth is, which is more recent, is digital humanities. And that's where the world wisdom map and documenting life lessons from 195 countries, working with data scientists and psychologists and, uh, you know, working with these different stakeholders of mental health realm uh, comes into
3: So so we'll put it, we'll put, you know, the World Wisdom Map, we'll link it to the site so people can go and have a little poke around. But like, what what does it roughly look like? What can people expect when you open up the World Wisdom Map? What are you looking at?
0: Oh, you are (laughs) stepping into a breathing repository of perspectives and experiences of diverse people from around the world, from Nobel laureates, to uh, you know, a grandmother in Tanzania or Kenya. You're looking mm. at an LGBTQ activist in Iran. To a, a you know a seven year old child somewhere in Guatemala. So it's it's this beautiful arrival at how diverse mm. and deep is human life. Mm. And the second is we've played around with that knowledge. So you have these stories, but we've Uh, onboarded artists from around the world who visualize these life lessons from you from an artistic lens. Mm. There are educational modules you can download to play as games with your family. There are Mm. care packages on how to handle grief, Mm. how to navigate, uh, you know, lack of uh, creativity or creative block. And all of these different components of life lessons and stories have been sort of packaged and repackaged and, you know, explored from various lenses Mm. on the World Wisdom map.
3: Amazing, isn't it? Like, if you it's only really at this point in history that such a thing could exist like the idea that you could go somewhere and access perspectives from all around the world i suppose i suppose there've been libraries before haven't there like that's something that's existed but like it seems just like a really really powerful use of technology um so like where do you see the project going like um say i don't know 50 years down the line and everything has gone to plan what impact would the project have had what would it look like at that point Thank you. That is the easiest and the hardest question I always have to come back
0: to. I I think on a very simple level, I would say is a shift in culture. I think what I'm looking at a long term perspective is is this hope uh, and mission towards knowing that people don't always see money as one form of currency that opens doors. But these sparks of wisdom, these life lessons and these experiences that can almost open doors, become a new form of currency, you know, internally for them to be able to step into rooms and conversations. And it's a cultural shift, which will take a long time to take, Mm -hmm. not just, you know, label wisdom or life lessons from Mm -hmm. godmen and messengers and highly enlightened professors and psychologists, Mm -hmm. but to themselves within their Mm -hmm. families to look into the face of the person across them you know, their parents, their children and say, so what did life teach you and value that? Because mm. I think when, when we will be able to accept that, we will be able to create a lot more appetite for holding space for each other. Because we will look beyond the clutches of the monetary value and the social media following. Because by default, we will accept that every person has value in them. And can we ask thoughtful questions? You know, can we can we be leading with curiosity to understand what that is and how it can come to serve us or those we care about? So I think on a on a very philosophical level, that's the cultural shift. Mm. On a second level, I think a, a, a bigger version of the world wisdom map. Imagine a world wisdom bank. You can almost go in and trade in your life lesson mm. and receive newer perspectives for your classroom, for your research, for your learning, for your family to mm. navigate this thing called life.
3: Mm. Fascinating. Like how, how if people you know, don't want to wait 50 years until that's ready, but like they want to get involved like now, what, what can they do in terms of like from wherever they are, you know, across the world, can they upload their own wisdom insights? Like how can people get involved in the work?
0: Excellent question. Absolutely. Nobody has to wait that long. It'll <laughs> defeat the purpose. Uh, I, I, all they have to do is go to worldwisdommap.com and submit their life lesson. And the backend team will make sure it, you know, flashes as a, you know, a wise firefly on the map, but also Mm. goes to the education team and translates into uh, an activity into a module and is taught around the world. And sometimes people will probably 20 years down the line reflect that one little nugget of advice that they buried in the internet somewhere Mm. has come to assist thousands of kids in classrooms Mm. or somebody just reading and, and you know, s- surfing through to understand how people think.
3: Um, you know, um, you said 7 billion people. Did you know on November the 15th, it's going to be 8 billion people on the planet?
0: Wow. Yeah, we yeah. are inching closer to that.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, and it's also interesting that they have they know which day it's going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, apparently 8 billion. They know the
2: day that it will
3: happen? They, they say it's November the 15th. Um, November fifteenth. Yeah, but, uh, it's a lot of people, um, and and and, a lot people, and you a lot, see lots of mouths to feed. Yeah.
0: lots of mouths to feed, and I mean the, that's the only place you know when I when I hear the world population like you know seven point eight five six billion. The, mm. the only thing, time it feels it feels hopeful is when you actually see it from the lens of life lessons and perspectives,
3: mm. and right. you
0: know sparks of wisdom that if one person was to give one thing, you would have seven billion plus suggestions. You know, Mm -hmm. not solutions, but suggestions. Mm -hmm. And where can we use them? And how can we use that human potential and human wisdom?
2: That's a big question. It's a tough question. And (laughs) you recently wrote a book called 50 Tough Questions of Life. Now, here's a tough question for you, Deepak. What motivated you to write this book?
0: (laughs) It was a young girl, Professor Iger, in Afghanistan, who said to me her life lesson was, Life is not about giving easy answers. It's about answering tough questions. And I thought to myself, what are tough questions, and who's asking them? So I went on a crazy quest of documenting three thousand toughest questions that I could answer for myself, and almost played it as a dating game. Uh, you know, hmm. first great first date conversation. If, <laughs> if anybody's uh, you know wanting to ask existential well, how you, life. How do you missions? determine if the question is tough? So, I mean, like, that's, you know,
3: it's like, <laughs> a tough question, ego.
0: Uh, that's a tough question yeah. i mean you determine it for yourself right like all the three thousand questions i i didn't filter or overthink about oh my god is this tough and how many people will vote for it to be tough if i felt it was tough for me i just you know decided it was a tough question for me and along so you feel the way like if
2: you're in bed in the morning and you're like should i wake up now or sleep five <laughs> more minutes is that a tough
0: question could be uh depending on uh, how difficult it is for you to wake up uh. One of the most difficult questions I think in the 3000 was what to make for dinner,
3: Mm.
0: (laughs) you know, but uh, in jokes aside, I think it's, it's, uh, it it sort of emerged as this personal activity that allowed me to understand people better, you know, the the way getting past the small talk. And these questions from 3000 trickle down to 420 and 380 and 120 and then to 50. And I used to play it as an exercise with family, friends, relatives to just understand them better. And um, I felt in 2019, while at a bookstore in a self-help section, that there were books and books about how to make friends, how to influence colleagues and solutions after solutions. And there were hardly any questions. Uh, And so I just decided to share my personal list as the 50 toughest questions uh, for me. And yeah, and and turns out, most people find not all, but many questions tough uh, in the book, which is reassuring. (laughs) (laughs)
2: well <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean a, a book with a title How to Lose Friends and Alienate People I think there's even a movie something with a title like that <laughs> is it uh, frightening when somebody asks you a tough question I mean a lot of people don't want to um, be uh, um, embrace well let me like a lot of people would shy away from somebody or they would not want to continue the conversation is that really a conversation starter
0: I think so I think so. At least it's tested to be true for me. Uh, okay. okay. So then um, here's my question. Uh, what are some of your
2: favorite questions in the book uh, that uh, hopefully will uh, help some of our listeners start their more profound, non-small talk conversations with others?
0: Hey, how can someone make you feel more loved? Hmm. <laughs> and that's a question for both you and Charles. Uh,
3: I, I have an answer. Okay. Let's hear it. Um. To pay attention and listen to you, and not be distracted by what's going on around. Them. Like if you're with someone and they're checking their phone or they're looking over your shoulder, that doesn't make you feel loved. But if they're sort of locked in and they're they've got all the time in the world, that makes you feel loved.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, yeah that's, that's that's pretty awesome. And mm. Professor Eagle for you. Oh
2: well, uh, me, I mean, how. Do you want to? I mean, I think I would agree with how uh, can, let me how can again. someone
0: make you feel more loved?
2: I think to be loved um, it, it's, it's a complicated question. What is love in the first place?
3: It's a tough question. I um, <laughs> once so said it was an think, easy question.
2: Uh, I think um, my response to this would be can you define what you mean by love before I can actually go ahead and answer this question?
0: See, this is where you're putting your scholarly academic hat on. No, I mean, I'm just just
2: thinking if this is not academic, but uh, like, what kind of popular love Love from my kitty or from a dog uh, or whatever other pet uh, I may have, or or is it a human love? It's love of a friend. Uh, Is it admiration? Is it the social media craze where everybody wants to have a lot of followers uh, on social media? whatever platform you may be using. So what if you, or, or is it to, to have a partner uh, whom uh, you can connect to? And so those are very different things and uh, they all require different strategies.
0: Absolutely. And I agree with you. And the easiest explanation to that is that's why it's a beautifully layered tough question because you get to decide what love is. And then you but it's an ill-defined
2: question, don't you think? I and mean, it's an ill-defined <laughs> concept. I mean, if we don't know what love is, then we can't really um, uh, comprehend. I mean, I guess it makes you reflect.
0: I, I, um, I, 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 I think a lot of labeling is also a distancing phenomenon. You know, every person, the moment you say love or hope, has a personalized definition. And if you want to, okay. if you if you go into it from an investigation point of view, it is absolutely a prerequisite to define it. But if you are answering it from a perspective of what you already know true to yourself, not what the right answer is for the listener, then probably it's an easier one to attempt. Do you think? Um, Yeah,
2: possibly. (laughs) Okay, give us another question. So uh, any other questions from the book that you're afraid to like?
0: Okay, all right. Uh, Okay. Um, What does pain that no longer hurt morph into? what does pain, that no longer hurts, morph into? And I can almost see Professor Eger saying, define pain.
3: What is but, pain? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not giving you that pass. <laughs>
2: no, I mean, it's an interesting question because it uh, right away uh, creates a certain metaphor, a metaphorical trajectory. Mm-hmm. Because you uh, biologically... Pain doesn't morph into anything uh, morph into anything it's either there it's not there. Uh, this is as simple as that, but yeah, that's not what we are talking about here. We are talking about the, uh, the metaphorical meaning mm. of pain mm.
0: I have a feeling you're going to finish my book in like fifteen minutes <laughs> that's one conclusion. <laughs> Because <laughs> no, I mean, either fifteen minutes or you're going to take a few years it's no because I, I I like how you're unpacking so many things, and you're right, like you know of course, biologically it doesn't make sense because then you can sort of deduct to what pain is and how does it morph, and what are the neurological complications and cognitive con- complications of understanding pain, but on a human level, on an emotional yeah, level, so, so
2: with the we are using it as a as a metaphor and we're not talking about the physical pain we're possibly talking about emotional pain and we link it to concepts related to you know the challenges and how you uh, reconstruct the experience uh, the difficult adverse experience that you may have had and potentially hope at least if you are living in a Western um, civilized uh, uh, nation that uh, believes in some principles of Christianity or Buddhism and so on, that you can learn something from this adversity. And Mm. because uh, much of our philosophical traditions put us uh, on a path of believing that that there is something to learn from adversity. So, what does more uh, pain then morph into? Well, hopefully, it will morph into some life lessons that you can keep with yourself, better understanding of who you are and what your relationships with other people are. But is that just a mirage? That's mm. my tough question for you. Yeah,
3: I would. I was gonna say that it. Uh, different things in different situations like the, the instinctive reaction is like oh pain you will learn something from it and it's, and it's tough but you, you know you come out dare i say wiser that's like the standard kind of default un, understanding that we we uh, gravitate towards but i don't think necessarily that's the case like sometimes you might not learn anything from it um there might not be a lesson to learn like some things are random um so so may you
2: learn to just accept it
3: Sure, mm-hmm. but sometimes you, you do learn things. Like so, so I think it can, it can morph using the metaphor in multiple ways. Um, sometimes there are lessons. Sometimes there aren't lessons. Sometimes there were lessons, but you missed them. Um, so yeah, I think go in lots of different directions
0: Slut through the lesson. <laughs> Absolutely. And the last, last and favorite question, question right. I have. Okay, go ahead. Is so far in the gallery of life, are you the art? The artist or the visitor? So far in the gallery of life, are you the art, the artist or the visitor? And just, I mean, footnote, we are all going to be all three at some point. But but, (laughs) but, uh, before Professor uh, but what
2: about the stuffy air in the museum after a lot of people visited? Oh, the the gift shop.
3: Everyone loves the gift shop. (laughs)
0: <laughs> or the gallery itself. Yeah, you could yeah. be the gallery itself too. <laughs> Charles, paint. do you have? Do you We're have a are the paint.
3: The paint. Uh, let's think. Art. Um, the art. The artist. Is it art? Artist or visitor? Um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think in metaphorical terms. I'm not sure what the art would be in the metaphor. Um, so you think.
0: get to define. Yeah, you get to define what what it means. What is art for you? Who's the artist? And yeah, what I imagine mean? the
3: artist is like the agent, like the the people that are shaping the world and the visitor is the sort of passive person who is, you know, experiencing the things passively that other people are creating. Um, yeah. That's how I would interpret that metaphor. And then I wouldn't know what the art would be. Like, oh, it's the product of, it's the things that people... Who, who are the agents that they make, I suppose. So I don't think I would be the art. I guess I'd be a little, yeah, some, a little bit of an artist, a little bit of a visitor, depending on the sector of life. Some areas I like to create things, some things I'm quite happy for other people to create and me consume. So, yeah, a little bit of an artist, a little bit of visitor, but not the art. I'm not the art. I wasn't made by, by an agent. So here's think.
2: where it's breaking down, Charles. It's breaking down when uh, you think of participatory art where you are part of the art.
3: Ah, you're talking about my the dancing. performance again. art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. What about
2: the, the flash mob? I mean, yeah, That's sure. Right. A, a performance art where uh, you are at the, uh, you know, the suddenly the stage moves into the audience. Yeah.
3: Yeah. These, I suppose it's interesting because, you know, you were saying, Deepak, like something that you thought was so important for society was more reflection. Um, and it seems with these questions... You know tough questions there aren't there's no correct answer, obviously, but it it's a very powerful tool for um, triggering reflection, isn't it? So it could go in lots of different ways, but it really seems to generate that kind of approach
0: yeah you've you've i mean pointed out correctly, and that one of the reasons I sort of penned it down, Charles, was also to encourage myself to reflect and revisit these questions, and you know sometimes my answer changed like from yeah. morning to evening to the yeah. same question, yeah and sometimes they remain same for like eight years. Mm. And it is this, you know, mapping and paying attention to this timeline of answers while I reflect on these questions Mm. has what also has inculcated a lot of introspection and, you know, Mm. about people around me as well. Deepak, thank you so much
2: for being on the show today. We learned so much from you, from your life lessons and uh, from your interesting um, stories that you have been collecting. We wish you best of luck. Out with all the different facets of Project Fuel, please tell us where can we um, find uh, the uh, different uh, projects.
3: Um,
0: so, I mean, people can go to www.projectfuel.fu.e.l.in mm-hmm. for India. Yeah.
3: Thank you, Deepak. Really enjoyed having you on the show.
0: Thank you, Charles and Professor Igor.
3: Igor, there that was. Unlike any episode we've done, let's let's say that like very very well. I mean, like, I mean, I think we've had one non-scientist on before the the one and only mighty Valerie Tiberius, philosopher extraordinaire.
2: No, we had also one of the Airbnb Airbnb guys,
3: Chip Conley. That's right. That is true. Um, So it, but 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 we were really. Talking about wisdom a lot from someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about wisdom and like practically on the ground out there, sort of gathering all these life lessons. Um, right. It's so a very different kind of, um, very different way than we often speak about it on the show. Um, the true practical wisdom. Practical wisdom, grassroots. And that seemed to be like not only what he did, but also his um, philosophy. He was like, he was trying to like pull, it sounds like he believes wisdom should be pulled out of the clouds brought down to the people it should be something yeah. that that is like um
2: democratized
3: democratized participatory um should involve dancing um so <laughs> i but it was r- very art. refreshing and like um yes a lot of thoughtful ideas in there but also you know you know when we speak to people a lot often similar ideas are coming up but this was like yes. okay we are starting from a different place um none of the normal assumptions are there so from that point of view very refreshing Um, and when you know really kind of um interesting animated thoughtful articulate guy
2: yes yeah very articulate and also a very conceptual very interesting metaphorical ideas Mm. there Mm. uh that uh, are guiding people to understand and make sense of the reality they live in a lot of narratives Um, Mm. that are permeating, that are probably very important for a lot of people when they try to make sense of challenges. So it's like, it's not necessarily as much that this is wisdom because this is what you should be doing, Mm. but rather these are the metaphors, uh, the meaning-making tools and the narratives that can help you figure out mm. how to proceed to reflect better. It's right. really, really interesting. But I think, I mean, I don't think it's as um, uh, sort of uh, grounded in the sense that it it comes from the people. It, it is grounded, obviously, in experiences of individuals. But at the same time, it's also very, very deep. Mm. It's not just some some ad hoc descriptions. Um, rather. Some fascinating things about both similarities, a bit of young and old, or people from different cultures seem to emerge, but also differences uh, from the assumptions that we may have in psychology. So I found that quite refreshing.
3: Can you can you think of something that was a, a stood out yeah. as a difference?
2: Uh, well, there's this deep-seated belief that... Um, young and old people, for instance, would be different in um, the type of knowledge um, that they possess, which is obviously true on so many levels. Um, But what Deepak seemed to suggest that the life lessons is more about sort of like uh, the way how you process this information. Mm -hmm. and uh, Quite often, it's the young people who may, because of their uh, naivety to some extent, and uh, ability to be impressed and uh, ask questions that otherwise you just take for granted, mm. that may they, young people may produce, the kids may produce some really fascinating, uh, thought-provoking questions. Mm. And mm. that's not something that I think a lot of psychologists uh, would share. A lot of philosophers would probably share this, though, because okay. the philosophers would say, well, you know, like, who's the best philosopher? Oh, a young kid. Because they ask those naive free,
3: questions. free of preconceptions <laughs> yeah that 's right they don 't have to let them go they haven 't even had the conceptions yet, yeah. yeah, yeah, um yeah, I like the idea of also this this idea that these are t- the things that he 's doing and making and sharing aren 't they don't really contain a lesson they 're more like a th- um something that forces you to reflect so like it's like a reflection tool and so it doesn't really like it's almost like the life lesson isn't the thing um and that was what was interesting about the jar and the lid i'm like that was not the lesson the lesson was not i mean not that he was suggesting it was but like but it's a device taking it from a child and presenting it to in a different context it's it's a device that enables people to reflect on their own situation um so Yeah. yeah so it's like you know wisdom as a as a, proce- a tools that can enable the process of thinking in a wise way rather than this is the content of wisdom.
2: Yeah, less about the content, which I, mm. again, like find very refreshing because... Mm. And I think there is some similarity to other guests we had who emphasized mm. it's not about the outcomes. It's not mm. about just this is the wise thing to do.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, it's more about how you process uh, a yeah. difficult situation. That yeah. You're
3: facing. Interesting. So... I'm going to... My one word is going to... I don't know. I think refreshing. It was very refreshing. Um, right. And Yeah. Um, if you're going to sum it up in one word. It was quite a lesson. Quite a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, all right, Igor. Well, that was great. Deepak <laughs> Ramola. Um, we'll share the info. Um, and we'll speak to you guys again soon. Cheers. Cheers.